Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning to everybody. Welcome to those who are online with us as well this morning. Glad to have you tuning in. Our study uh, continues in the book of 1 John. We are in chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6 and read on through uh, verse 12, which is the next uh, little section here as John uh, begins to wind down this uh, precious book. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. And I would ask uh, if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Now remember, John has just asked the question in verse uh, 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that question sets up this next section to follow. So uh, let us begin reading then at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So the matter of one's testimony is a very serious thing. Now, I'm not just talking about your spoken or written testimony of your personal salvation. Um, That, uh, of course, is very important. But I'm referring more to everything that there is about you. The message that you send verbally, visually, and characteristically every moment of every day about who you are and what you believe. That's how I'm using the word testimony here. When it comes to what you believe about the Lord Jesus, of course, your testimony about him in word and deed should actually reveal him, uh, or should say accurately, actually works too, I guess, but accurately reveal him for who he really is. Again, back to that question in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Remember the context in which this letter was written. John is writing to a group of people who have been ripped apart by false teachers who are saying that Jesus is less than what the Bible reveals about him, what he said about himself as the Son of God. We'll talk more about that Son of God God title in a little bit. But the, the testimony that you have concerning him is as he is revealed, the Son of God. 
not what the false teachers were putting forward as some created being or some half, uh, half God or half man or, or sort of virtual man, not really there, but all God or, or, not, or just sort of a, a spirit, uh, but more, more man. The, the, the heresies were rampant in those days. And so John is saying, you need to understand in your testimony uh, who this Jesus really is that you're proclaiming. And certainly the false teachers were not proclaiming the, the Jesus uh, of the scriptures, the Jesus uh, who re- represented God to us so perfectly in his earthly ministry. But that brings us to the point of this section. <clears throat> that your, your testimony, my testimony, certainly are important to who Jesus is. And the point of issue is that there were those who were giving a false testimony concerning him. But what's even more significant to John is that there is a more certain testimony even than our testimony, as accurate as it may be, as compelling as it may be, there is a better testimony, a more more sure testimony, and that is the testimony of God himself. John here is taking us uh, back to uh, the core of, of why we believe. And it's not because somebody told us about Jesus. As important as that is, if you may remember, those of you who have been here uh, since the beginning of this series, which uh, has been a while, but at the very beginning, John is defending the witness of the apostles who were the eyewitnesses who touched, handled, examined, probed to see and had firsthand experience with who this God is. Their witness, the witness of the apostles is astounding. And yet, John, even in that context, is not saying, he's not reiterating here. He's been building up to this point. He's not reiterating that, see, we have this great testimony, so you should believe what we've been telling you. He said that before. But in this section, he's, he's like, right at the very heart of this, verse 9, if, if the witness, of, if the testimony of man is worth anything, the testimony of God is greater. And he describes that testimony in various ways through this passage. You will notice as I go through in the development here that it has a, 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 at least a general uh, chiastic uh, development here. So we'll be starting the beginning and the end and work our way towards the middle, the heart of which is, again, verse 9. Now, before we get into, uh, uh, into uh, this, I need to talk about something because I know that at least... There must be at least one person in here that is wondering about the reading today. Because there are some verses missing in my reading today. Verses that are present in the King James Version. New King James also has it because it's coming from the same translation family. And those are the verses that speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three agree. Anybody, anybody have that in the Bible you have in front of you? Yeah, a few of you are going, Pastor Len, just skip that. What was he doing? No. Um, honestly, the ESV translation here has it absolutely correct. Now, 
Let me just say that, of course, it is absolutely true that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit agree. No doubt about that. There's plenty of other passages in the scriptures that communicate that unity within the Trinity about their whole function. Uh, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 if you want. Then it, he, Paul just unpacks it there, doesn't he? But it's interesting that this... Um, this uh, th- these verses, these Trinitarian verses, uh, do not appear in any uh, in any Greek manuscripts prior to the 15th century. Um, they appear once in a Latin uh, translation of the Vulgate, a fourth century translation of the Latin Vulgate, and um, they only appear in the Textus Receptus, upon which the King James version is based. Because when Erasmus did that translation, he was forced to include those verses from 1 John chapter 5 by the Roman hierarchy, who would not let him uh, leave them out over his protestations. Um, Erasmus, whatever else you want to say about him, uh, he was an excellent translator, and he had some he had some integrity, and he was like, "This isn't there in the Greek." But Church of Rome said, doesn't matter, you're putting it in. So, lo and behold, a manuscript appears, still drying the ink. Look, oh, here they are. And so that's why it ended up getting uh, inserted. Now, you might wonder, I don't want to make too much of a rabbit trail about this, but let's talk a little bit about textual criticism and how, how uh, uh, the scriptures get transmitted down through time. As, of course, you know, before the Gutenberg Press especially, everything was hand-copied. And um, it was not uncommon for the scribes that were transcribing things, if they, if, if they had an error or something, uh, that uh, hours and days of work could end up going in the trash and they'd have to start all over again, that sort of thing. But it was also true that many scribes, very pious Guys, many of them, uh, that, uh, you know, just, I don't, <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you uh, probably have had the experience of having to write, um, I will not do something or whatever, a hundred times on a ch- chalkboard at some point in your life, those of you who are older, <laughs> maybe. Um, and you know that after about the third or fourth one, your mind goes into, you know, and you just kind of, go on and if you go back and look either the lines all go down this way or you skip words or you misspell things or whatever well that happened more often than not that's why we get the textual variants that we have as these guys are you know transcribing by candlelight you know um you're trying to uh, to uh, faithfully put things down um they would make mistakes sometimes they'd skip lines sometimes they'd do other things but it was also true that there were some, perhaps more of a, maybe they were a little more intent upon what they were doing. They would, something about the scriptures that they were transcribing would strike them in a particular way. And there are, we have textual evidence of, of uh, scribes writing marginal notes, little commentaries about what they just wrote. And it's not unusual that subsequent scribes uh, and making copies would just they'd be writing along you know and they they just read the marginal notes and they just write the marginal notes right in and it becomes part of the text that they copied 
happened a lot. And the presumption is, is that at some point um, that took place uh, in the Latin Vulgate tradition. Uh, somebody was like, oh, look at three that agree. Oh, well, this just points ahead to the, the Trinity and just and, and made, had, a, had a comment, had a thought, wrote it in the margin, and then it ends up getting put in. So, so there's no solid textual evidence that this occurred early. Um, and so therefore, uh, most Greek scholars today recognize that those verses are, are not part of the original text, even though the doctrine that it says is true. So uh, that's, that won't, that's why we're not going to be dealing with those verses and why the ESV leaves it out, because they're going from that, what I think is a better uh, um, uh, scholarship uh, point of view. All right. Let's leave that aside then. And then there's one other thing that I want to point out. Um, you perhaps noticed as I read through, I hope you did, the frequent use of the term testimony. I mean, it's clearly the, 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 the whole point of this section is about testimony. Anybody know what the word is behind the English word testimony in this passage? Some words you all know, but you might not put it with this. In Greek, it sounds almost exactly like its English equivalent. Um, I'll just give you uh, one form of it. Uh, Marturion. Now what word is it? Martyr. Martyr. That's what we get our word martyr from. Which gives you an idea of what they thought of and the original Greek term didn't necessarily mean somebody who died. It talked about somebody who testified. It's just that in that day and time, if you testified of Jesus Christ, you were likely to die for that faith. And so it became to take on that meaning when we think of a martyr. It's someone who testifies unto death or unto loss. And so you see that testimony that's here. Um, and it's interesting, of course, it speaks about our testimony, and we're used to thinking about our testimony being something that, yeah, are we willing to die for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that each one of us is. But it's also interesting that this word is also applied to, the, to God himself as the one who is testifying, the one who is willing to die for the truth of what he's putting forward. Did God do that? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. And in fact, this is not even a, a, a new concept in the New Testament. If you go back to the covenant made with Abraham, when, when Abraham goes into that vision, goes into that, that trance state, and God comes to him, do you remember the image that is there? Abraham had, had taken the animals and cut them in pieces and laid them out before the Lord as he was commanded to do. And when God came to him, it was as a flaming torch that passed between the pieces, declaring his name. You remember that? In ancient Near Eastern times, those, those kinds of covenants, and in fact, the... Sorry, I'm jumbling all this together because I'm excited about this. And you can tell I have energy, which I didn't have last week, so I'm making up for it, okay? And you're also looking at the notes and going, Pastor Lynn, there is no way you're going to get through all that. And you're probably right. So anyway... In the ancient Near East, and in the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew, the phrase for making a covenant uh, literally would be translated cutting a covenant. Particularly when it was a blood covenant, animals would be sacrificed, 
And the whole point was, to put it in a nutshell, if I fail to keep my part of the bargain here, I'm willing to die. It was, that was the nature of the covenant. So animals would be... What's happened to this animal would happen to me if I fail to keep my part. And God walks through and declares his faithfulness, declares his covenant. And what happens in God's perfect time when he sends his perfect lamb, our perfect substitute, he becomes sin, therefore must take on the penalty that is due us and dies for our sins. Gorgeous, gorgeous gospel picture. And here we have in this section, it says that God, this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. God was willing to, I'll, I'll use a tired cliche, but God was willing to put his life on the line to accomplish his purpose and be faithful to his promises. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. But let's look at the nature of this, this, these witnesses that are here and what's going on. So verses uh, 6 through 8, we'll start there. Three witnesses, the witness of the Spirit, the witness of water, and the witness of blood. Now, uh, I don't know what, what uh, you've heard in times past about the water and blood and what's going on there. Um, I've heard all kinds of fanciful interpretations of this, uh, people trying to come up with the... Uh, either the tripart nature of man, uh, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, some have come up with uh, uh, this was uh, maybe a Jesus birth uh, because of, of uh, um, the water and the blood that is associated with, with, uh, with uh, the birth event. But um, I think it's probably best and does the least violence to the context to look at this um, in a little different way. Now, the witness of the Spirit... That's clear, cut and dried. Um, we have been talking about the Spirit throughout this book and His work. Uh, through, he witnesses through the Word, certainly, but He also witnesses in our own hearts. He testifies to our spirit that we are His. There is that witness, the confidence of that, that personal connection that we have with God because the Spirit indwells with us according to the promise that was given, that he would do so by the Lord Jesus Christ. The water aspect, um, I think it's probably best to look at this as the witness of Jesus' baptism. Um, and when you, when you look at the baptism that is there, obviously Jesus was not an unbeliever. So this has nothing to, Jesus' baptism has nothing to do with believer's baptism at all. Baptism had to do with anointing and setting apart into a holy purpose. And baptism, uh, Jesus' baptism was accompanied by certain signs that are really pretty cool. If you go back and look at the anointing of the high priest, uh, the, the instructions concerning that, do you remember some of the things that were there? Uh, he was to be anointed with oil. And oil throughout the scriptures is constantly connected with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, the pronouncement of God at the time, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, uh, it speaks to identity with God. And do you remember the golden plate that, that Aaron was to have across his forehead? 
what, what it said. Uh, in the Hebrew, it was Yahweh Tzedakah, which is the Lord is righteous. It speaks of the one who has met all expectations and fulfilled all righteousness. And certainly the Lord Jesus did that. And do you remember who it was that baptized him? John the Baptist? Do you, do you, um, do you know what John the Baptist's lineage is? He was a direct descendant of Aaron. Hold that thought. Oh, young man. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> Got away from dad, I think. Um, Okay, John the Baptist is a descendant of Aaron. Now there was a high priest in Israel at that time. We're not really told about his lineage. Presumably the Jews would have said that, yeah, he's from Aaron. But when you look at John the Baptist's lineage, he goes straight back. Remember, John is declared to be the greatest prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, a transitional figure. But John, if there was anybody that had the credentials as far as lineage goes to be the high priest, it was John the Baptist. So here you have someone who, though not recognized by men as uh, holding that office, the Lord sent, certainly, if you look at the prophecies concerning John and so on, definitely fulfilling not only a prophetic but a priestly role. And he was the one who was to anoint Jesus Christ. Jesus' baptism is about his commissioning to his office as high priest, the one who would stand in our stead and die on our behalf. So there is that witness that we see there of the commission at the beginning of his ministry. And then the blood, you have the witness of his crucifixion. That one seems a little more obvious. But here, um, at, at, why is the blood witnessing to anything? Well, what, did, what was, okay, the most famous quotation statement that Jesus made on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. So the witness of the Spirit of God through the Word, enlightening our minds, helping us understand through the Word and through His immediate um, um, uh, work in our hearts and minds as we study it, as we live out uh, our lives as believers... Yeah, there's that testimony of conviction, comfort, all of those things. But Jesus himself also, his baptism, all the signs are there. It witnesses to the reality of who he is as the Son of God. And the fact that he finished the task that he was commissioned to do witnesses to the fact that he is worthy of our praise, that he alone is the Son of God, just as he revealed himself to be. So our Lord our God testifies through these three witnesses that are here. Next, when you look at the, the other end of this little section, verses 10 through 12, I'm going to use a word in a, in a way that might be, uh, you might go, well, that's kind of an odd way to use it, but I did this deliberately so we think about it. And he witnesses to us, he testifies to us through three confidences. It's kind of an awkward way to say it, but I'm going to go with it, okay? 
Because John focuses on the confidence that we have and the source of our confidences and what those confidences are. John is, is talking to people whose confidence has been shaken by the false teachers. Oh, has, was what the apostles taught them really true? Is, is what we have founders always understood about Jesus true or not? Uh, what's the nature of our faith? Is this where we need to be? Or do we need to follow these other guys? So they were shaken. Take a look at this. Verses 10 through 12, we'll read them again. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Um, that's an amazing statement right there. If you're truly Christ, you're truly believing in him, then uh, that, that witness, that testimony of God is something that is in our hearts because our hearts have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. All right? And that's the, we have this focus here. If you look at verses 1 and 4, um, you know, we have this confidence. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born by him. If you believe that Jesus is Christ, you've been born of God. Um, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you've been born of God. Verse 4 says, um, if you've been born of God, you overcome the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith, speaking to our confidence. And so I was thinking here of the ministry of the Spirit of God, and how this works out as we believe. I'm, there are things that, uh, uh, that we believe in life. And then somebody comes up and asks us a question. And we go, oh, maybe I got that wrong. <laughs> right? When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, have you ever had an occasion in your life where you thought, you know, I've... This is a very self-absorbed sort of thing, but that's where these sorts of questions come out of. <clears throat> well, did I get this right? Is Jesus, is this, is this really worth this? Is this faith actually end up getting me where I think it should get, get me? We can have those kinds of questions. The Lord wants us to have confidence of a heart that is sealed Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how he's given to us as a guarantee. He has sealed us unto our inheritance. And to have that kind of confidence, to walk with that kind of, of confirmation, that's a testimony in and of itself because you can only get that from God. You can only manufacture that for yourself so long. And after a while it breaks down because we break down. Because we fail. I, I love what this says here. And I kind of but I still kind of scratched scratched my head a little bit, uh, thinking about why put this way, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Uh can any of us actually make God a liar? No, <laughs> we can't. Um, but I think the idea here is uh, kind of makes him out to be a liar. Uh, demonstrates, remember, testimony is all about what we're saying about him. And basically, um, if uh, we make God a liar, it's basically we're declaring by our lack of faith and by our, our deeds that God is less than he claims to be. 
the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, in verses 17 to 18, uh, says something very interesting that applies here. Part of which I think, uh, part of this section, I'm sure is familiar to many of you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. Talking about sealed hearts. The confidence of a heart that is sealed under the Lord by the Lord's action. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. That's confidence. Because of what God has done in sealing us to himself, guaranteed by an oath that rests only upon himself, for there is no higher thing he could tie that oath to. This confidence, as I mentioned before, is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies, and He is the one who is the truth. Verse 11, it gets even better. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The confidence not only of a sealed heart in the present, um, that, that confidence of knowing that we are resting in what God has done, but to know that this life is not all there is, but he has sealed us for eternity. And that eternity is certain with him. Take a look at John's gospel back in chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. The Feast of the Dedication is underway in Jerusalem. It's wintertime. Jesus is walking around in the temple. The, uh, the Jews are gathering around. They're trying to provoke him. And they're saying, well, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Are you God or not? I mean, they're looking for him to incriminate himself, himself in their minds. And um, we're uh, uh, coming in here where Jesus answers this and said... Um, It's interesting, he says in verse uh, 25 that the works that he's done in the name of the Father bear witness, same word, uh, of who Jesus is. But you do not believe, he says, my sheep hear my voice, but you're not my sheep. In verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. He gives his sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He ties this into the very character of God, just which no doubt had an impact upon John as he went to write his epistles. I would not be surprised if John was thinking about this interchange between Jesus and the Jews in the temple when he wrote what he wrote in 1 John. But anyway, my Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then, of course, the Jews attempted to uh, stone him. The uh, The Lord testifies to us. Our God testifies to us that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, one with the Father. And he does it 
uh, through, the, through the witnesses of the historical fact of the ministry of Jesus Christ accomplishing all things and confirmed in our hearts by His Spirit. And then through the promise of eternity that again is tied with His oneness with the Father. And it's not just the eternity, but again, it gets better. Verse 12 of 1 John chapter 5, take a look at that. Whoever has the Son has life. That's because the life that is promised to us is resting in Jesus Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Now, the life here, of course, the immediate reference has to do with eternal life. But I think it's interesting that um, John doesn't say the one who has the Son has that life, referring to the eternal life, or this life, something. He just says, has life. So I think there's more here that's that involved than just eternity, future. I think there's also a, the present that is involved. And to have life, you know, we talk about that are the, the saying that we have these days that somebody needs to get a life or I have a life or I really need to get a life or whatever it might be. We're speaking of fullness, aren't we? We're speaking of, of having purpose and knowing what it is and being able to accomplish it and pursue those things and uh, to uh, have at our disposal things that bring us joy and satisfaction. And so... Part of having, part of this confidence is not just, well, okay, I know that my heart's sealed. I can just hang on by my fingernails until then. It'll be great. I know I got promise of eternal life. I got to grin and bear it to get through this one. That's really not what the Christian life's all about. Christian life includes all of the above. Inner peace of our oneness with Christ a confidence of an eternal home and inheritance because of what he's done. And the satisfaction now in the present of being one with him and rejoicing in the blessing of that relationship. Hallelujah. When you look at John chapter 1, what do you see there? I mean, we're used to seeing those opening verses and we think about, about Jesus being the Word and revealing all of that. And that, of course, follows right along with all of this as well. But in verse 16... A, a verse that we don't often read because we stop at 14, that's the end of the section, and then John starts off with another, another thing there. But you read in John 1.16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, layer upon layer of God's favor poured out upon us to experience the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life now. We have received it. Not we will receive it. We have received it. We often live like we haven't. And by that I don't mean just that we sin. That's part of it. But sometimes we live in a very defeated and unsatisfied and restless uh, version of Christianity that reveals that we don't really understand that this fullness of Christ is ours now and we should be living in the joy that is in Jesus Christ now in spite of whatever else may be going on. Right. And just in case 
Uh, we didn't get it there in John chapter 1. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to say something very similar in Ephesians chapter 4, where he's speaking about the, the giving to the church and the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and pastors and so on for the purpose of doing what? Do you remember? Equipping the saints. And if you look at verses, uh, verse 13 and works on through to the end there, equipping the saints to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it's in the context of maturity. You know, I think all of us who are believers long for that day when we will be made like him for we shall see him as he is. We'll be made free from sin. We will, we will be finally mature. I used to have a mug years ago. Um, and now I can't even remember what it was, what it actually said, but the, the gist of it was, is, uh, oh, I know what it was. It was given to me on a birthday by some loving friends. It said, uh, and I really do not know what prompted this thought in their minds. You may be the judge of this, but said on the mug, it said, I may be getting older, but I refuse to grow up. Why they'd give that to me, I don't know. But anyway. We long to grow up. We long to be in maturity. We long to not want to make mistakes anymore, to say the wrong thing anymore, to, to disappoint our, our God anymore, to disappoint our friends, our loved ones, our family anymore, to disappoint ourselves anymore, to be the, the you know, be all that you can be. That's what we desire. And yet, this is one of those things, those tensions that you often see in Scripture, what theologians talk about as being the now and the not yet. In the now, we have been given this fullness. But sometimes we don't act like it. We've, you know, we've, we've got the joy of Jesus Christ, but we walk around with frowns on our faces. And everything's horrible. And it's all miserable. And how are we ever going to uh, you know, survive all the stuff that's going on around us? Beloved, we have the fullness of Christ. Pick up your head, look unto your Savior. Be full of joy. This is a confidence that our God has given to us. Let's not pretend it isn't there. Oh Lord, it's just too bad right now. I can't deal with this. No, He is the fullness. And He gives it to us through Jesus Christ. There is confidence in the present when we are satisfied in Him. That is His promise. To make us full of Jesus. Okay. The longest section. I was going to go through it really fast. But now you have, we have the opportunity that I will pick it up next week here. And I'll be able to go through it slower. I was just going to go through this like lightning. But this in many ways at the heart of this is the best part of all. So I was going to go through it a lot just so by a cumulative effect you'd be with me. Just like, whoa, look at what God has done here. What's look at the nature of his own testimony. But uh, I'll, 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 give you the, I'll give you what goes in the blank anyway so you can start looking ahead. And if, do me a favor. Look at all these verses because if I do take time next week to go through every single verse here, we'll be two hours, okay, just in this section. And I don't think you would have patience for that. Um, 
The Lord testifies through three witnesses. Spirit, water, and blood. Spirit of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He testifies through providing us the uh, sure and certain confidence in our hearts by sealing our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the promise of eternity that is repeated over and over again, and the confidence of being satisfied in the presence in the present with the fullness that he gives us in Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, in some ways the simplest of all, and yet the, the most incredible, is he testifies immediately through declaration. And we're going to look at the kinds of... I'm, I'm, I'm using this... Uh, we'll use this as a, uh, as a springboard to look at various places throughout the Scriptures where God has declared certain things and in the way that He has declared certain things concerning His Messiah. So we're going to be looking at things like Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and, and all that kind of good stuff. So um, you're going to... As you go through this, you can't help but being blessed as you meditate upon what God has done, what God has said about His Son, the Son of God. And so, actually, then it'll be next week that we dig into that phrase, Son of God, and talk about what exactly God is testifying uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. For now, though, we'll stop here. I need to make a note so I remember where I stopped. And we'll look forward to finishing this up by, as God wills next week. Will you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices. That as you call us and you redeem us and you adopt us, Lord, you do not uh, then shut us off in a room and never converse with us. But Lord, you continue to witness to us through your word, through the ministry of the Spirit, that Jesus has done all things well and accomplished our salvation. And you've given us the Spirit to seal us in our inheritance. You've, you've promised us an eternity of life in joy and peace and holiness with you. And you have, by your presence with us, and by your continual sanctifying work to make us more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you've granted us his fullness in which to live. Lord, let us not look to be satisfied in any other but the Lord Jesus Christ rejoice in the testimony that you have given us concerning him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.